Welcome to SCI Science Perspectives, a podcast brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. In this podcast, we'll be discussing emerging literature spanning the full spectrum of SCI research, from discovery to clinical application. You're listening to an administrative episode. In these two special edition episodes, we will be hearing from the research award winners from Asia's 2022 scientific meeting. Authors will be given five minutes to present their award-winning work and discuss any future directions. We hope you enjoyed the episode and hope to see you at next year's meeting in Atlanta, where you might present your work live on the podcast. My name is Nicole Bidek. I'm a research assistant with the Men's Health, Aging, and Metabolism Research Unit at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Um, I'm also a certified exercise physiologist, and the name of our project is SciLink's Development of a Physical Activity Social Network App for People with Spinal Cord Injury. The first phase of this project really focused on developing a physical activity social network app, which I mentioned we called SciLink's, and this is for people living with spinal cord injury, and it's with the idea that we might be able to use physical activity to potentially improve or promote social connectedness. So in order to create a meaningful product, we held a series of online focus groups with people with spinal cord injury, and we followed a standardized interview guide just to solicit reaction to the Silence app and get participant recommendations for app content, development, and usability. The sessions themselves were actually led by one of our study investigators and team members who has experience in qualitative research methods and also is living with spinal cord injury. Um, We conducted the 19 focus group interviews with people with spinal cord injury, and all of the participants were at least one year post-injury, but they were diverse when it comes to age, sex, race, ethnicity, and also time since injury and level of injury. Participants also provided some information regarding their lived experiences with physical activity, technology, and social support as well once the interviews got underway. So during these sessions themselves, while showing app images and screen recordings of the app, participants shared their reactions as well as their recommendations for several key modifications to the app. So some of these modifications included expanding the list of potential physical activities that users could pick from, including activities for not only users who have manual wheelchairs, but people who use power wheelchairs as well, and those who might use arm crutches. They also included adding criteria to improve the matching of potential users within the app, the opportunity for flexible goal setting and activity tracking strategies, removing ableist language, and also improving silence visuals to include more modern uh, representations of people who use wheelchairs, um, and also making sure that we include gender and race ambiguous people in those visuals. In addition to all that, we also heard some feedback and endorsement for the potential for people with spinal cord injury, really to find other people with similar experiences or activity interests using this app. So all of the recommendations were compiled and implemented following each session. And we did this with the support of the app developers that we're working with. So overall, participants really expressed enthusiasm for the overall app concept and endorsed the potential for this app to help People who are using it essentially make connections with others who either have similar experiences or maybe they have shared interests and want to connect with one another. So to kind of summarize it, we are able to gain substantial and meaningful recommendations for Silinx, 
And that was for both the development and the usability of the app using that consensus feedback. And it was from a diverse group of people living with spinal cord injury. So with all this in mind, we believe that feedback from these sessions suggests that Silinx might be able to positively impact physical activity, but also social connection in people living with spinal cord injury. We're actually between phases of the project right now. So the final modifications to the Silinx app that was based on that feedback from our phase one focus groups are actually being made right now. Um, so that's still in the works, but our next step for this project is to conduct a study where people with spinal cord injury will use the app for two months. Um, the nice thing about this study is that everyone who participates in this next phase will be able to download and use the app. Um, so once people decide they wanna join the study, of course, we know it's completely voluntary, but after they join and they're using the app for those two months of participation, we'll evaluate participant satisfaction with Silinx as well as any potential changes in physical activity or social activities. And that will just be done remotely. So the beauty of the study is that it will be completely remote, done over the phone or perhaps video conferencing, but we'll use standardized report measures like questionnaires. Um, so we're gonna update the app based on what we learned from the second phase trial. And our plan is to make it available in app stores for both Apple and Android um, sometime in mid 2023. So we're certainly interested in exploring ways to make the app as widely available as possible for people in the spinal cord injury community. Um, so that's something we're continuing to explore just as things move forward. And more broadly, and just as a final note, we are potentially exploring how we might be able to adapt this application or even this concept for other populations as well. My name is Matt Davis. I am an associate professor at McGovern Medical School, uh, University of Texas at Houston. Uh, and I received uh, one of the awards for one of the best oral presentations at the latest Asia conference. So the title of our project was, Do Cardio Reduction Strategies Provide a Net Benefit for Spinal Cord Injury Patients? We were looking at trends in emergency department utilization from 2012 to 2017. The reason that we thought this would be an uh, important topic to discuss started when we uh, started in 2014. In 2014, a lot of spinal cord providers noticed that uh, we were seeing adverse events related to removal of indwelling catheters in spinal cord patients in acute care hospitals. And this appeared to be a response to a, a recently or recently enacted regulation policy uh, from the CDC. And uh, so what we did is, you know, we looked at the trends in the National Emergency Department database sample and we compared those to trends uh, in the catheter utilization ratio. And so one of the things we noticed was the CDC reports catheter utilization in ICUs every year. And there was a fairly significant dip in catheter utilization in 2014 and also again in 2017, but, but also a, a pretty steady decline really throughout that whole time period. And, and our hypothesis was that, you know, we would see decreasing rates of UTIs in the non-spinal cord population because these catheter, these cardi prevention strategies tend to be effective in non-spinal cord patients, but that would really wouldn't affect UTI rates in spinal cord patients. Uh, they wouldn't be seeing the same benefit as the general population. We also thought that we'd be able to see trends in uh, the, this ER database sample of unintended consequences related to autonomic dysreflexia and renal consequences due to the urological retention that, that our patients have. What we found was that 
basically both of those hypotheses were true. The, the UTI rates in the general population did decrease by about 8%. The UTI rates in spinal cord populations actually went up a little bit. And even just ER visits, total ER visits, so in, in the spinal cord population, total ER visits increased 20% compared to 11% in the non-spinal cord populations. We saw a big jump, even in that first year, about a 40% jump in episodes of urinary retention in the ER. And that corresponded to uh, significant rises in hypertension. We assumed that hypertension equals dysreflexia. Hardly anybody codes for autonomic dysreflexia, but we definitely saw a lot of hypertension. And we saw things like strokes and seizures that also had increased in the spinal cord population. And when we adjusted for age and gender, what we saw was that there was no, the, the, the protective effect that the non-spinal cord patients tend to have with female gender or younger age did not apply for the spinal cord population. And so that kind of further supports our, our idea that these hypertensive episodes were dysreflexia, not just regular hypertension like the, the general population has. Looking at future directions, I think that we're going to take this data more on an advocacy-related route. First, the, the purpose for this uh, was to really gather data about unintended consequences because in 2014, we had approached the CDC and suggested that, they, that this measure may be doing more harm than good for spinal cord patients. Uh, and we were challenged to come up with data to support that. And so we feel like this data does support that. And we'd like to share that with the you know, representatives in the CDC and CMS and see if we can enact change in this policy. If this is not effective, then I think we need to do some more work to more closely tie these adverse outcomes to this measure. Right now we have an association and we all know that association does not equal causation. I think we have a lot of background information that would, you know, we would expect these sorts of outcomes with this type of policy. But I think we can, we could do some more work to more closely tie these outcomes to the policy itself. When I was a resident, every spinal cord patient came to the rehab hospital, they had a Foley in, always. You know, so, so did the geriatric patient that had a hard time getting up and going to the restroom. And for those patients, that's why, you wanted, that's why this policy was enacted. Now, I'd say at least half of my patients, if not more, show up without an indwelling catheter. And sometimes they have a, a, an in and out cath program, often not. And sometimes that in and out cath program was done appropriately. Other times it was, they were cathed every six hours for volumes of 1200. And the question really with this one was, you know, for the patients that come to tier or go to you guys, right? You can fix that before it becomes a real problem, like a really big problem. You can teach the patient how to properly manage their bladder. What percentage of spinal cord patients go to spinal cord centers? It's a pretty low percent, right? So what happens to this giant amorphous mass of spinal cord patients that are just kind of, they're told that Foley's are evil, they're released out into the world, and they believe that. And most of the physicians in training now are learning that as well. We saw a 20% increase in, in hospital mortality in spinal cord patients. So not, not only did ER visits decrease, increase out of proportion, but actual hospital admissions and in-hospital mortality parallel that increase. So my name is Antoine Zion. I'm a third year medical student and master's candidate at the University of Montreal. 
And for the past few years, I've had the, the great pleasure of working under the guidance of uh, Dr. Jean-Marc Maxion, who's an orthopedic spine surgeon and clinician scientist at the University of Montreal as well, and the lead investigator on the project I'm, I'm here to talk about today. So the project that I presented at last year's is a, a scientific conference was, is it safe to start an activity-based therapy within days uh, following acute traumatic spinal cord injury? Interim results for the prompt SCI trial project for which we were awarded the first prize for the best oral talk at the, at the Asia Scientific Conference. So the idea behind this project actually germinated a, a few years ago when our, our team identified an area of discrepancy between what we were doing or clinical practice and what seemed to be recommended in, in the animal literature with respect to what we should do in the very early stages after traumatic spinal cord injury. So to this day in, in the clinical setting, most patients with acute traumatic SCI generally remain bedridden for a few weeks after the accident. And active rehabilitation treatments only begin after a, a substantial amount of time uh, after the injury. But in the animal literature, we, we saw a growing body of evidence, uh, led in part by some of our, our collaborators at the Magnuson Lab at the University of Louisville, that supported the idea that early mobilization and, and more specifically early activity-based therapy uh, should be performed promptly after the injury to effectively optimize neurofunctional recovery. But despite all of these encouraging results from the animal literature, early activity-based therapy had never been attempted in human before, mainly due to practical difficulties that are inherent to the acute setting, and, and probably also because of theoretical safety concerns for the, the acute TSCI patient who is somewhat medically unstable. And so it was in, in that context that our multidisciplinary team designed the, the prompt SCI trial, the first ever trial of early activity-based therapy following acute traumatic SCI, with the objective of first, determine if early activity-based therapy could be safely performed after traumatic SCI. And secondly, to evaluate essentially whether early ABT would be worth the trouble of overcoming the feasibility barriers of the acute care and whether or not it could in fact help neurofunctional recovery in humans. And so uh, at the last uh, edition of the Asia Scientific Conference, I had the great pleasure of, of presenting preliminary results from the trial, supporting and directly supporting the safety and feasibility of early activity-based therapy by, by showing that a simple intervention of 30-minute bouts of in-bed leg cycling could be initiated as early as two to three days following the accident with excellent patient participation and uh, with, with no serious adverse events. And even more recently, we've corroborated these preliminary results with an additional 20 participants over the, the first 15 that we presented initially and have observed the same excellent completion rates of the full protocol of cycling. So this all leaves us very optimistic for the future of early activity-based therapy uh, after severe traumatic SCI. And exactly, it's, it's true for every, every population in the ICU except traumatic SCI patients. And you know, if, if you're interested, one of the main reasons why we think clinicians were reluctant to implement them is, is actually because of one simple study in animals which showed that too intense of an exercise such as swimming could actually worsen the neurological injury because of the permeability of the, of the blood spinal cord barrier. So, so, you know, we, we've attempted to do an intervention that, that's low in intensity, so it's only passive or, or activist-assisted cycling. And for the moment, we, we haven't had any problems. So, 
So the, the first stages of our project were, were really focused on ensuring that early activity-based therapy was both feasible and most importantly, safe for our patients. And with the preliminary data that we presented earlier, we believe that these endpoints have been met sufficiently to allow us to continue investing in these kind of interventions and, and start paying a little more attention to their potential impact on actual neurofunctional recovery, which is the, the end point, which is the, the end goal. And on this matter, with, with the data that we've collected so far in the prompt SCI trial, we can safely say that we've had encouraging results with a non-negligible proportion of patients that are actually experiencing better early neurological outcomes than what was expected for them based on, on match controls. And while it's too early to say with absolute certainty, we seem to be observing a certain tendency towards better responsiveness in patients with cervical lesions rather than thoracal lumbar. And so I, I guess the, the logical next steps for us are to better delineate and, and better identify the factors, and perhaps even more importantly, the mechanisms by which our intervention seems to be working in some and not in others. So our objectives for the near futures are twofold. First, continue to perform the intervention on new participants, keep growing our database, and better characterize good and bad responders. And second, maybe take a deeper dive into the fundamental science uh, behind early activity-based therapy by including more electrophysiological analyses of the nervous system during and after sessions, and, and try to improve our understanding of the potential therapeutic mechanisms in play. Finally, we also want to vary the parameters of our intervention in order to maybe identify better ways to, to perform early activity-based therapy in patients to optimize neurofunctional recovery. My name is Dr. Kath Bogie. I'm a research career scientist at the Cleveland VA Medical Center and a professor in the Department of Orthopedics at Case Western Reserve University. I'm a biomedical engineer and our research presentation at the Asia meeting was genomic biomarkers for recurrent pressure injury risk in persons with spinal cord injury, which was awarded one of the best oral presentations. So the project that we presented, as with all research projects, started several years ago with one question has morphed into another question. So what we started with was looking at why, the main clinical question is why do some people with spinal cord injury get recurrent pressure injuries? And they seem to be doing exactly the same thing as folks who either never get a pressure injury or maybe get just one. And we started by looking at muscle quality, something that we look at using uh, CT scans and looking at local and circulatory biomarkers. And we found some differences between the people who did and didn't get recurrent pressure injuries. But then looking at the model which we developed, which includes all the demographics, level of injury, extent, uh, extent of injury, duration of injury, we still couldn't answer the question, what's driving what we've seen as a novel a risk factor, which is a rapid increase in intramuscular adipose tissue. So we sort of took a step back in a way and started looking at the genomic biomarkers that may be driving this. And so what we have done is continue to recruit participants. Our participants are all veterans with spinal cord injury. And we are looking at their 
genomic profiles using a whole genome sequencing and focusing on the inflammatory and uh, fatty metabolite pathways. Uh, we found that inflammatory biomarkers are increased for pretty much everybody with spinal cord injury, not at a, a clinical level necessarily, but definitely above what would be expected for a non-spinal cord injury population. But the fatty metabolites are showing differences between people with and without recurrent pressure injury histories. We focused it down from the sort of several million genes that are in the whole genome sequencing to uh, 260 genes that are differentially expressed between persons with high level IMAT and cross-referenced with their recurrent pressure injury. And we've also, we're starting to focus it down even more to look at specific genes, which will give us potentially something that could then be translated into a therapeutic for, for these individuals. Because clearly what we have at the moment isn't working for everybody because we've got far too many people who keep on coming back to hospital, keep on having pressure injuries, and, and we don't always know why. So our, our study is uh, currently a VA-funded four-year study. We started in September 2019, which has obviously led to several months, if not over a year, of challenges in recruiting. But we are actively recruiting from three VAs at the moment, Cleveland VA, where I'm based, Bronx and Minneapolis. And our goal is to recruit 100 participants and carry out internal external validation. And ideally, further down the road, we'd like to look at larger databases. So the VA has a, a wonderful database with the MVP that we're collecting from veterans, which includes several veterans with spinal cord injury, and it would be great if we could look at that. And then once we've identified these genes, that leads us to the potential to look at maybe repurposing drugs for treating genetic genes that are upregulated or, or identifying protective genes. I'm not a drug development person, so that would not be my <laughs> next step. That The next step would be to translate it to some, transfer it to somebody with that expertise so that we can basically develop interventions that will target personalised risk just in the same way as is done, you know, for, for people with cancers and other big, main big diseases now. I think pressure injuries in our population of folks who are living with spinal cord injury are also an area that warrant advanced approaches to prevention. My name is Diana Pernigotti. I am a research coordinator at Gaylord Specialty Healthcare in Wallingford, Connecticut, and I'm a member of the executive board of the Spinal Cord Injury Association of Connecticut, a chapter of United Spinal. Part of the work that I have done recently is with the SCINU project, which was a collaboration with the University of Toronto group and a group of researchers here in the United States through the greater Boston chapter of United Spinal. And We've been working on this for quite a few years, so there are different collaborators that are with us, but we're very fortunate to have had Gaylord Specialty Healthcare supporting this program with us. For this SCINU project, I am the project coordinator for the US research team for the Spinal Cord Injury and You study. And the poster, Exploring Peer Health Coach Roles in the Online Health Self-Management for Adults with Spinal Cord Injury, was one of the best posters presented at the Asia Conference. 
SEINU part of the project that I reported on at the Asia conference specifically had to do with the role of the spinal cord injury peer health coach and how they became a peer health coach. All the spinal cord injury peer health coaches have already been trained peers and peer mentors for at least five years and active in their community. With additional training that we were able to provide them, they learned how to coach people through some of the issues and concerns that people may have living in the community with a spinal cord injury. We always looked at it and thinking it would be to help prevent secondary conditions and to improve people's self-efficacy related to their health care and in turn improve their quality of life. So our peer health coaches worked with us in the beginning of the program to help with help design the training, what they thought that they would be looking for to help enhance their work with peers in the community when they were having these structured, targeted conversations with them. And we provided the training and we continued to work with them both individually and in group settings over the course of months where we were also able to pull in some professional consultants where we had a rehab nurse came and spoke with some of the group about concerns and issues that people often have. And we had a counselor come in, a psychologist that is very familiar with working with people that have a spinal cord injury across any length of time. And he just supported our team as they went through some of the training processes that they need to in order to ensure that they were comfortable talking through some of the topics and looking for the resources and information that they would be helping to provide people with as they navigated this in the community. So our peer health coaches did fantastic throughout the entire study in providing that service. And the part that we were looking at here is their responses and how they felt about their training and how they felt about their role in the study. So at the conference, we're happy to have the presentation where each of the peer health coaches played a role in that presentation. They shared some of their thoughts, their opinions, um, exactly what they went through. And they're basically becoming a great PR for the spinal cord injury peer health coach role, which we're hoping continues on. The coaches did bring up positives and negatives, which we were happy to be addressing in some of their training and as it came up with them. But at the same time, we knew we had the support and the backup to provide what was needed to make sure that our coaches, as well as our peers in the community were getting the services and resources and information that they needed so that the peers would feel supported or coached as they helped to improve their own lives. For this poster, those are probably the primary findings. We know that spinal cord injury peer health coaches have to be their supporters and they can assist people as they're navigating the system. So sometimes they are working to advise and to share how they're in they have been in the same field with people. But one of the big things we found here is that they are also advocates and they know how to shift in between these roles in any individual conversation that they are having with their peers. So they're really identifying what's needed at the time and helping to provide that for the peer. That, that, that's one of the big things I think that we have known throughout the years that are the peer health coach role. They provide a bunch of different roles, but they are very comfortable in moving and shifting in between these roles to meet the peer where they are.
one of the things that we had thought about here was not necessarily that we need to get people to a hospital or to a facility. We can not only meet the person where they are with their mood and their mindset and their journey, but we're also meeting the person if they're comfortable staying at home and only communicating by telephone or by video conference or through texts and telephone. Whatever worked best for the person in the community is what we hope to address. So we're cutting down on those high, high costs of transportation just are not covered well enough. So the next steps for this project, we're hoping to have secured funding so that we can take the SEINU project with our trained peer health coaches into the acute care rehab facilities that we're affiliated with. Here in the United States, that will be at Gaylord Specialty Healthcare. We're hoping to have peer health coaches available to work with people as they are transitioning out of acute rehab into the community and helping them navigate some of the services and systems that are unique to their own situations and perspectives. And the coach would be someone that they can turn to to talk things through because it's not, coaches are not providing healthcare and they're not making decisions for people or leading them to make the calls and do the work. They're just sort of supporting them and coaching them into what is the next best step in order to get what you are looking for here? How can we navigate this? How can we look at barriers and hopefully get rid of some of the barriers completely or mitigate the effects of some of them? And peer health coaches, we do know are a great link to the healthcare community. They have been there in the past. They have gone through rehab. They have continued to have their follow-up appointments and are living in the community. So we know that our coaches will be able to help people navigate that space when it is all new for them in that very difficult first year where they're adapting to so many different changes and need to find ways to make it work in their own homes, wherever that home may be. If it is their own private home or in another facility setting, whatever the peer is comfortable with, we're looking to meet them there with that. And again, we will be working with the University of Toronto on this in a group in uh, Canada, and we're hoping to be able to enroll people that are interested in learning how to do this and, and being coached through the process. So we're hoping to continue the education and the PR about the professionalization of the peer health coach role in the United States. Hello everyone, my name is Marla Petrillo. I'm a spinal cord injury medicine fellow at Stanford University. At the time of this project, I was a PMNR resident at MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital. Our project is titled Discover SEI, a multimedia spinal cord injury educational research for patients and caregivers. And this project won Best Early Career Poster and Best Poster at 2022 Asia Annual Meeting. So our poster was titled Discover SEI, uh, which stands for Dynamic, Intentional, Simulation-Based, Concise, On-Demand, Versatile, Engaging, and Real. And really what this is, is a multimedia interactive patient education tool that is aimed at people, especially with new spinal cord injuries, for education of both patients and caregivers that are admitted for inpatient re rehabilitation. So there's kind of two main unique aspects of this project that kind of highlight, you know, why this project is a little bit different. 
The first part of it is that this project was really designed with an interdisciplinary group. So we used contributions from spinal cord injury medicine physicians, spinal cord injury nurses, occupational therapists, physical therapists, as along with uh, simulationists. And then importantly, also people living with spinal cord injury in our community to really come together and choose you know, the topics that would be most valuable toward to this community, as well as the you know best ways to present the information. So we kind of identified these educational domains that we thought would be most relevant for people with new spinal cord injuries. And the ones that we came to a consensus on were adjustment to SCI, bowel, bladder, skin health, and autonomic dysreflexia. And the other kind of unique aspect of this program was, you know, its foundations in really known educational principles. Um, so Van Wick wrote this narrative review that kind of discussed the best ways to go about spinal cord injury patient education. Um, and then also the other educational domain that we focused on was uh, Michael Patton's developmental evaluation approach and Kirkpat the Kirkpatrick model of uh, training evaluation. So, you know, those were kind of two of the unique aspects that make this particular project, you know, I think more uh, very powerful in the way that the information is uh, relayed to patients and caregivers and also really rooted in these educational foundations. So in the future, uh, we hope to implement more simulated kind of hands-on training for patients and caregivers. You know, obviously with this project starting, you know, right before the beginning of the COVID pandemic, a lot of that was a little bit delayed. But our hope is that we can really bring in and do hands-on simulation for things such as catheterization, bowel program, and really formalize that education for both patients and their caregivers. And we also want to incorporate patient testimonial videos especially focusing on like psychosocial aspects of living with spinal cord injury. I think this will really kind of bring the program alive and just give a really important voice to these patients with new spinal cord injuries and just kind of seeing somebody living with something, you know, uh, in their community, I think will be really helpful. And then finally, kind of drawing back onto the Kirkpatrick model of, of evaluation, these patients will be evaluating the program. You know, obviously, as whenever you implement a new program, you have to make sure that it's actually working. And so we'll we'll ask the patients to sort of evaluate, you know, the pros and cons of the program, make sure that they're getting an, uh, enough out of it, and obviously implement any changes that are recommended by the patients as they kind of go through the program and see how it works for them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the first season of SCI Science Perspectives, brought to you by the American Spinal Injury Association. This podcast is made possible by the leadership of Dr. Suzanne Groh, your producer hosts, David McMillan and Marla Petrillo, our editor, Abby Fox, production assistant, James Concepcion, and Asia's front office. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please contact us at SCI perspectivespodcast at gmail.com.